Howdy listeners and friends, just to let you know, sorry I'm a little bit late today. I had planned on releasing this yesterday, but I had some issues with Kellen's audio, so I was working on trying to fix that. Occasionally, her mic goes out and it sounds a little bit like she's underwater. I tried to do my best with that. <clears throat> However, I believe that's probably an issue of Rambler yesteryear. Over my husband's birthday, he bought me a bunch of new recording equipment, so my sound is about to drastically improve which is going to be so nice. Please keep an ear out for new episodes. I really appreciate the contributions of all of my patrons because it was enabled me to save up to also get some better hardware that I needed to go along with this new setup. As always, all my listeners and patrons are very, very appreciated. Please check my show notes. They will have links on Kellen and on myself and ways to support me. And uh, that's about it. Thanks, y'all. I do especially appreciate you doing this for me because I know that you have so many calls going on. So it's nice that you would make some time for me. Calls like this are more refreshing. Like you said, you know, it's it's rare that women of color get opportunities to just kind of have open, honest conversations about, you know, our professional lives, our work, or the context of our lives that inform what we do day to day. And then also in the space of not just having those intimate conversations, but, you know, what you're doing is trying to to uplift our stories in really respectful, you know, consensual, transparent ways to, to highlight our connection to the land and, and what we do and the roles that we have in our community. So, honestly, this is, I've been looking forward to this. This is refreshing. This is a nice change of pace from, um, you know, having to be in, you know, program coordinator mode or manager mode uh you know i'm just looking forward to having a little chat yeah and uh by the way y'all this is the second season of rambler i'm your host jordan marika and this is kellen and she has agreed to come on and talk to us about well a lot about her life um and the things that they have done over time including urban forestry which is something i don't know a lot about but it sounds hella cool yeah. Um, this is me. Um, I'm calling from Itihama, or Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's traditional Yaknihoma and Bayagula land. Um, I guess I got into urban forestry because I've always been a tree person, just been fascinated by by nature. And, you know, my family originally is from this little village. Um, in Kasachi Forest in central Louisiana. But I grew up in Houston, uh, so I kind of always had the best of both worlds, so to speak. You know, I'd, I'd spend holidays and summers on the river, riding horses, uh, riding the four-wheeler through my uncle's fields and, and doing all the country girl things. But then during the school year, I'd be in Houston um, and be tickled to do things like go to the Arboretum, or volunteer with different conservation groups. Um, so I, I didn't really know urban forestry was a, quote, thing until I got older. And I guess I feel like I've always been an urban forester, and I didn't even know it. You know, just climbing trees, trying to talk to squirrels. 
<laughs> you know, things like that, collecting magnolia seeds. Yes. Um, it, it, it's weird how, you know, they say you always have a, a path in life, even if you don't know it, and as you get older and, you know, things kind of fall into place, it really does ring true. Yeah, and I was really interested to talk to you because I was raised by a tree person. And uh, my dad went to school for arboriculture specifically. And, uh, but we were from Columbus, Ohio. So for a while we lived rurally in Northeast Ohio. And uh, so of course, when he was going to school, he would take me with him. So I associated a lot of arboriculture with Northeast Ohio and deep woods and Appalachia and things like that, where he was studying. But when we moved to the city, he also started uh, curating and stewarding fruit trees in inner city mm-hmm. neighborhoods that were already growing there, but maybe weren't producing fruit because they hadn't been taken care of, things like that. We did a lot of urban um, food stuff, predominantly guerrilla mm-hmm. gardening. And uh, so it's always cool to hear about other people's fields because to my dad, he was just doing his horticulture stuff. You know, I don't even think that he would have known of a word urban forestry he was just like the dude who knew how to make your trees grow in the hood and so people would like yeah. ask him to do it yeah and that's kind of what i'm doing now i'm working with a an urban farm association where we have a couple acres in a public park um you know in a predominantly black and food insecure neighborhood um if you know anything about Baton Rouge or, you know, if you spend five minutes here, you know, it's really clear that the city's historic color lines and, you know, markation of segregation is still pretty apparent um, in, in how the city is set up. If you go north of North Boulevard or north of Florida, um, you know, it's the historically, you know, black areas of, of the city uh, where people were we're segregated. That's where Southern is, and it, it's a pretty clear, uh, you know, dichotomy. If you go to Southern versus if you go to LSU, where the money goes, where the factories are, where the nice city uh, old mall oaks and um, you know Garden District is, and then where the neighborhoods and the campuses are, I guess, refineries. Um, so it's um it's pretty interesting, an awful environment to be working in. Yeah. Um, but you know, someone coming from a restoration ecology background and, and having grown up in you know a different city and trying to come here, where I have family. Um, you know, yeah, I have a lot of family who have who stayed in Louisiana and who have lived in Baton Rouge for decades. But um, I'm trying to come into the space, um, you know, trying to be equitable and trying not to overstep my my boundaries as someone who didn't grow up here. So I'm trying to find my space and, and to support efforts that were going on long before I moved here and just trying to offer my expertise and my experience to expand those programs um, and to connect people with more resources. Yeah. Um, and, Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I didn't. I was just agree with you. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see how cities with large universities, the way that the gentrification happens, is so parallel 
And of course, when people hear this episode, they're going to be like, well, segregation, ain't that just the South? But I like want people to know as someone who grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and went to college 45 minutes away from Cleveland, Ohio, which is one of the most redlined and segregated cities in the United States. This is just what happens in all urban places is Mm -hmm. universities support white neighborhoods and gentrification. And then they push out the regular degular black folk who have always been living there and then take all the city development money because it's really hard to get a loan as a black person to develop a business or to buy a home. And then there's this constant dichotomy of wealth and ownership. And even in the modern era, it becomes so hard to get on top of that everybody looks at these historical black neighborhoods and wonders why we don't invest in them. It's not that we don't necessarily want to invest in them. It's that there are purposeful roadblocks keeping us from economically developing our own communities. And that's not just in the South. That's like, America is based in racism. It happens everywhere, no matter the people's accents. Right, and I I was so keen to talk with you because of how you bring everything back to the land. And, you know, every... I I feel like I don't want to say beating a dead horse because I don't I don't want to beat a horse. But in every nice. conversation that I have with people, whether I'm working on the coast, looking at coastal landmass issues, or I'm working inland, looking at urban food security, you know, we keep creating these programs and these initiatives. And like you said, you know, a lot of these issues could be reduced and mitigated from the start if we took it back and looked at land ownership potential and, you know, people just having a home and, like, a, a space that, that really feels like they they can personally invest in because, you know, it's their little patch of dirt that, that you know, is their home that they're, I don't want to say it's theirs because it's not ownership, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, yeah. That's your spot. Like, if you're if you're chronically renting or, you know, don't have the capacity to rent, you, you feel like you're, you could just be blown in the wind at any point in time. And, you know, I, we moved a lot in Houston. I moved, I lived in a lot of different neighborhoods. You know, we didn't stay in the same place for over a year, really. And so I, I never got that experience of growing up in my childhood home that my parents lived in together, you know, I, I didn't get that, so we were always moving from place to place, um, and now still kind of doing the same thing, but every every person that I talk to, we all just want the same thing, we just want some place that we can call home, and we can feel like we, we're allowed to be responsible for this land, it's like we aren't given that opportunity or that capacity to be land stewards or homeowners. Um, because we're not given the financial strength to to buy into the land, or people don't think that we're we're worth it or we're capable of it. Um, you know, you're talking about food trees uh, in urban areas. I remember talking to someone. I think they're with the World Wildlife Federation, and they gave a keynote speech about food insecurity on a global scale. This was when I was younger in school, and I asked them in a breakout session, I was like, how do you feel about, you know, ur- urban fruit trees? Like, what if we landscaped with more edible plants? 
you know, and had little signs up everywhere. So instead of just, you know, a nondescript, inedible holly or ornamental flowers or something, we planted with things that people could actually eat and harvest, you know, and that's part of the city maintenance. And this person's response to me is like, oh, no, if he did that, people just wouldn't care for them. They'd be rotting fruit all over the ground. Like they, they just think that people who live in urban areas are just so disrespectful of nature. Like, we can't be trusted to have fruit trees on the corner, which is just such a myth because if you talk to anyone in New Orleans, they're always looking forward to the leaf season or, like, when the low crops aren't fruit. People always are sharing satsumas. Like, if one person in the neighborhood has a satsuma tree, chances are they're begging someone to come help them harvest when the satsumas are coming in. Because when they're, you know, really abundant, you're just trying to get rid of them at that point. But it's, you know, it's a gift for the whole neighborhood to have a fruit tree. And for this person, you know, I'm not even going to tell you what they look like, because I bet you can guess. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he was just so flippant. Like, no, these people don't understand how to tend and care for fruit trees. There would be spoiled fruit all over the place, and it would be a trash issue. I'm like, really? You don't think we can be trusted with fruit trees? Okay. Yeah, and also the thing is, that's so silly to me, because how many old grannies in the hood do you know that just grow food in pots or old coffee cans and stuff like that? Like, people, one of the reasons I think that the urban farming in the areas I was growing up in before they got gentrified were so successful is because little old ladies in the hood loved it that we were growing a garden yeah. and then they would encourage people who came to visit them to go over and walk in the garden and pick some of the food and bring it back to them and people did appreciate that and also it was an area that was really well known for being safe for kids and people to be because nobody really wanted to mess with the nice place that members of their community had built and that's what happens mm -hmm. when you build security trust rather than exclusivity um is that you create spaces where people stop showing their ass basically and that makes a safer community because you make them feel like they have something worth protecting and a place to keep some peace mm -hmm. for themselves and for other people and people just don't respect community building in urban areas largely because they don't respect black people yeah they, they don't respect people who live in these urban areas like like i said a lot of the programs are very top down, you know, instead of saying, well, how can we change these systems so that we're not creating a system where people are dependent on aid because they don't have living wages or they don't have security or they don't have the means to invest in themselves and their communities and, and their families. You know, we just have these perpetual programs that, you know, are or feel good for the, the tourists in the urban areas, kind of, or the people who don't live in these neighborhoods or, you know, didn't grow up this way. Um, but that's one reason why I love the farm um, in North Baton Rouge. It's called Baton Rouge. Super cute little name. Um, but we don't have fences around the farm, and we get flack from that from funders sometimes um, you know I, I've actually led tours of potential donors and <laughs> they're like literally clutching their pearls like how is crime here at the farm and I'm like 
little lady, no one's going to rob me at gunpoint for these mustard greens that we're growing in abundance. Like, you know, it's almost like hollowed ground here. People respect that. Like, yeah, we may hear shots going off over on another block while we're harvesting, but, you know, the community knows not to bring violence there because that's where people go and play basketball. That's where the elders come to walk. That's where people bring their kids and their dogs. Um, and, you know, we always, you can, the way that the farm is set up, it's, it's like four or five acres that we tend and maintain, um, but we never turn people away if they want to come and help us weed. Um, we have weekly events where we show people what we're doing. So if they grew up gardening or farming with their family, they love to be able to get out and get their hands dirty again. If they've never planted a seed before in their life, we walk them through the process. Um, you know, we show them new vegetables that they might not have encountered before. We share recipe ideas. Um, but the big thing is, you know, we never turn anyone away if they want to harvest or if they want food. So we have people who are who come here and are ready to, you know, invest their time to help volunteer. And then we have people who just roll up on their bike or in their car and ask, hey, can you harvest me a couple bags of collards? Or do you have any turnips today? Or, and we say, yeah, hold on a minute and I'll go get you some. And then we go harvest for them. They take it and then they go home. And that's great. That's what we want. You know, we have people come with boxes and garbage bags and we'll just, you know, fill up their garbage bags of mustard. And, you know, it, again, talking to donors, they're worried, well, how much are you producing? Because we need to know, we need to quantify how many pounds of uh, vegetables you're producing or how many servings. And, you know, I recognize that's an important metric to have so we can kind of gauge our success. But... Also, it's like we're not going to turn people away or fence in our farm, um, you know, just for the sake of being able to quantify everything more precisely. It's like if we see people here every day harvesting and, you know, if we have people, you know, come to us when, when we're working and they want to know more, to me that's, that's a success. That's obviously a success, whether we're counting all of our things or not. Yeah, because my question is, why do they consider the production of the produce the win and not the mouths fed the win? Because, honestly, if they're like, well, do you keep a tally of all the folks who come in here? That would, I feel like, be a little bit more reasonable. But even then, that's not really their business. If people are coming every day to pick up food, what else do you need to know? You know, like, the right. evidence is there. People, even that is hard to gauge and, like, it's hard to, to find the middle ground between, you know, the realistic need to have some quantifiable metric to report to our donors and to quantify our success. But some people intentionally come by the farm when the staff isn't there because they, not that they feel ashamed, but they're private. You know, they appreciate that this is here, that it's being kept up for the community, but they'd rather just harvest on their own and go, and that's fine. You know, people are at different comfort levels of um, feeling like they can come and approach us or they want to get involved or what have you, but that isn't our business. And, mm -hmm. you know, trying to separate between, you know, should we just be growing the food because 
we know there's a need and we know it will be used and we know this will be successful, whether we can perfectly accurately quantify how many mouths fed or how many plates uh, filled, you know, is that one point or is it one point to be changed in the landscape and knowing that this space will be, will be, will be feeding people, like whether we can accurately quantify it or not. Right. And I, I guess that's just like a larger issue with science as it is now. Right. You know, this obsession with quantification of, of things that can't always be perfectly quantified or, or shouldn't be, you know, the, the shift in the food production and distribution system and people's relationship to the land, that's ultimately more important than accurately quantifying how many pounds of food we produce every season. Especially because food insecurity as somebody who's been through it is something that is deeply personal and not something that's always easy to discuss with people, not because I'm ashamed, but because I don't necessarily also, there have been times where I didn't want to deal with people's pity and lots of other mm -hmm. things because it's hard to admit to people when you can provide for yourself to a certain amount, but that capitalism has then limited you to access to all of your needs. So you have to choose something like your rent or your food for that month. And people are oftentimes right. stuck in these really hard spaces where they have to make choices like that. And they shouldn't have to, but if they're forced in that position, they definitely shouldn't be forced to explain all of the bad things that they're going through. You know, just so, just so that people who may come to one tour at your farm ever in their lives can be satisfied. Right. And it, it's hard because you want to know, you know, you want to have that data so that you can better understand, you know, who are the people who aren't meeting their needs and, you know, how can we better support these people, um, you know, from the data collation side of things. I understand the desire to have more accurate data um, to increase efficiency, but yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just like, you know, maybe it's not a matter of our systems need to be more efficient. Maybe it's we just need to reinvent these systems, mm -hmm. you know, because the more data we have, we're just pumping them. Like, oh, we need more people to be able to access SNAP, and we need more people to be able to, you know, um, access EBT and WIC and, and things. And these are good programs. These are helpful programs. But... A step further, it's like, well, what would it look like if people didn't need SNAP or didn't need WIC just to be able to provide for themselves? You know, so you have to be having both conversations. Yes, address why people aren't, who are eligible, aren't accessing these support services if they need them, but simultaneously address what is keeping people in these economic, in poverty so that we still need these services. It's uh, it's treating the symptoms while refusing to look at the larger diagnosis because it very much makes people uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. It's why we see so many charity fads that I feel like run through cycles where it is you buy an object and a certain amount of that money goes to this thing and then it makes you feel better for a little bit. Um, Right. Uh, because people are also want to help, 
but afraid to get involved in their communities. And that is very much class and race-based. So there are folks who, of course, are consider themselves liberal, but they still have those internalized fears of people who are poorer or different from them that keep them from truly becoming involved in their communities. And so these symptoms are what they think need to be treated generally because they just don't have any actual experience with the people who are going through various levels of poverty and disenfranchisement through our government system. And I feel like that is very much articulated in you telling me a story about people who want to support your farm immediately asking you about crime and fences. Right. It's just a complete disconnect from, you know, the actual lived experience. You know, if you've never been food insecure, if you've never been homeless, if you've, you know, never worried about things like that, you're missing, you're kind of missing a lot of the point. Because it's like, you know, yes, we can connect people to support services. We can offer dietary coaching and financial coaching. But, you know, the root cause of it, is, you know, a lot of people just feel hopeless, you know, because, yeah, you can get your life together or whatever. You can have your little bit of savings, but, you know, you, you may come up against discrimination in the workplace. You may be hit with a health scare because you live in a toxic environment and that wipes out your savings. Um, you know, you may face <laughs> violence on the street without any notice or, or warning, and so... You know, I, I understand why why a lot of people feel trapped and feel stagnant, and you know, because like even if even if you take all these coaching and take all these programs, you know, we're still in this effed up system where you can only where you feel like you can only get so far. Or if you do get further, like if you make it out your neighborhood, if you go to school, if you're making the money to support your family, and you know all that, you still have to deal with all the freaking bullshit of, you know, the people who are just completely out of touch with the folks that they're supposed to be advocating for because mm-hmm. they just, they don't know any better and they don't, they don't realize that they don't know and they don't realize how, and they don't know how to listen. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's especially frustrating because I feel like people like us who come from backgrounds where we are people of color, but also have significant ties to the land, um, have a little bit of a different perspective on it because I think a lot of people also don't associate communities of color with food growth outside of slavery or connection to the land outside of oppression. And so it's a weird dichotomy Mm -hmm. in our culture too, where some people don't necessarily want to work the land because it feels oppressive to them. And I can't tell anybody what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't be like, but actually it can be rewarding when the fact is, is that like land trauma is real. And it's hard to articulate and explain, but I like once asked my grandfather if he wanted to go camping with me sometime and he dead ass looked me in the face and said, Jordan, I went camping plenty in Vietnam when they drafted me. And he was a young black man who was drafted at the beginning of the war as a scout. So he like saw some of the very worst parts of the war. And I had to be like, 
you know, that's, that's fair. Like, what causes me to find relief and comfort is different than what does that for you. And I in no way can tell you that you're wrong or need to readjust that. Right, which is why I would never say to anyone who comes up to the farm and just ask, like, can you pick me some of this and I'm going to be on my way. I'm like, yeah, of course I will. I'm never going to tell them, oh, you should pick up a hoe yourself and contribute to this land, young lady. You know, because I don't know where that person's coming from. I, I don't know. It's not my place. My my job as a farmer is just to feed people, and I don't need qualifications or you know, you to prove anything, um, you know, there, there are folks who are able and willing and, and there are folks who aren't, and I'm, I'm not going to pass judgment on folks who, who can't tend the land. Cause yeah, it does come with a lot of, a lot of trauma. Um, and I wish that's something, you know, in addition to advocating for urban ag, you know, saying, oh, we need to teach people how to grow plants and we need to teach them that they can produce their own food so they can be self-sufficient. Uh, you know, we need to focus on giving people opportunity to, to heal themselves and to heal relationships with the land by coming at it from less of a standpoint of, hey, you live in a food insecure neighborhood, you're a young black man, you might go hungry in the future, so we're going to teach you how not to. But, I mean, that's an important lesson too, but also, like, hey, you know, let's teach you a little bit about Yakni's home. This is the type of land that you live on. This is the history of the land. This is the history of this okra seed. You know, it was okra is a African vegetable. You know, folks from Africa were brought to America specifically because they were farmers. And they needed their, you know, planters wanted their knowledge of rice and other crops to make this land profitable for the colonizer. Yeah. Bring up back to that history so that not only are you learning how to grow okra to feed yourself, but you're learning about the history of the okra and, and kind of reclaiming that connection to the land, reclaiming that connection to the heritage food so that, you know, you're not just getting your hands dirty for the sake of getting dirty, but you're continuing a practice that our ancestors did so that every time you put your hands into that dirt, it's not just growing food. You're continuing a practice of your ancestors, whether you do it every day or once a year. You know, but do so with the thought that, you know, the folks who came before me, they survived so that I could live here and, and keep fighting and keep surviving and hopefully one day thrive. And, you know, I'm doing this in homage to them. Yeah. And I think that um, we also should probably talk a little bit about how sometimes there's a dichotomy between urban farms and community gardens. And some community gardens require members of the community to pay for their plots. And so while some of you who listen to this might be like, well, that's not bad because that means blah, 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 blah. The thing is, is that when you go into a neighborhood full of black people and you tell them that they have to pay to grow vegetables in their own neighborhood, that sounds like sharecropping. And it's a weird gentrifier move that I have seen lots yeah. of people with a white savior complex commit themselves to doing and then the community gardens end up just becoming white people community gardens because nobody who lives in their neighborhood and always has wants to hand money over to white strangers to grow tomatoes in their own park 
and I just feel mm-hmm. like again, it's like, yeah. why am I paying rent on this land that I'm tending and I live in and it's my neighborhood? You know, who who owns all this land that none of us seem to be able to have access to? <laughs> yeah, and it never feels like it's truly theirs because at any given point in time, somebody can say that no matter how hard of a work that they put into it, that they no longer get to go there. And that happens to black folks and poor folks mm-hmm. and immigrants and queer people, anybody marginalized so often where we build something for ourselves and do create the sustainability. And then dominant culture decides that we don't deserve it. And so you cannot pressure uh-huh. people into engaging into these savior programs because at any point in time, they know that the people in charge of those programs could just decide that they're not worthy of their own labor. You know, you gotta actually build community trust and that is not the way to do it. Right, like I feel every day I I joke with, uh, you know, our, our program coordinator, our ED, I'm just like, I'm still just joked that y'all got one of the biggest public landowners in the city to agree to let us fund here. And I, I wonder if our leadership weren't white male, if we would have gotten this far. Because I'm, I'm part of other coalitions that are, you know, indigenous women led, and all we all we want, all of our problems, you know, we say we, we need safe spaces for, you know, if there are hurricanes, we need folks to be able to have a place where they can move their, their seedlings or move their people. Um, you know, we need places for ceremony where we don't have to worry about people coming and disturbing us or, or needing a security crew or, um, you know, having extra people on board who can't participate in ceremony because they're trying to keep a circle of protection around us so that we can focus on what we're doing. You know, all of that would be alleviated if, if we just had land or, you know, had land that we could tend in ways that are, are right and just to us. And so I'm just really fascinated, like, wow, you really got this lease on, on public land to just farm um, with it's uh, it's amazing how how some folks can navigate a little differently in the world, and I'm glad that they are. I'm glad that they're doing this work. Um, so I'm just trying to take notes and, and see, you know, can we do something similar, but something that is, you know, black and indigenous women led in our community, because we do have, uh, you know, those elders like you were saying, those little aunties who you know, have been gardening for years. You know, there are folks like Miss Aldrima and Old South Baton Rouge who have been doing this work for a long time and, and teaching folks like our lead farmhand, Erin, you know, she's, you know, a Miss Aldrima in the making, just out here gardening and, and cooking for the kids and, you know, inspiring people. You know, how, you know, how do we bring down these systems so that, folks like that who have been looking out for their community for years and feeding their community for years. How do they have more say in, in how the land is tended and owned and, and managed? You know, so they don't have to report to these massive land holding agencies. Yeah, um, I think that that is a larger discussion on colonization too, is because who 
and why are these the people who have to seek permission to thrive on their own mm-hmm. land? Because it's not that it, black and indigenous women always use the land to benefit the community at large. So it's very interesting mm-hmm. and also purposeful that we are the ones who are the most restricted from obtaining land rights and ownership because we create sustainability outside of ourselves without profit, which works against a system. And it's interesting that, um, because when I think about it, you know, I grew up in a, in a Pan-African community. My mom got a degree in Pan-African studies. So I grew up around a lot of really well-educated uh, Pan-African theorists. And of course, there's the one side of people who mm-hmm. try to say the whole, well, we were born a kings and queens type thing. But I myself has always been a, well, we've probably been peasants all the way back. And I'm hella proud of that because <laughs> our, like, I know... All my European ancestry comes from my great-grandfather, Amaricus Miglarini, and he was chased out of Italy due to fascism. But guess what? That dude was a farmer, too. So everybody in my background is a farmer, and I don't think that I should have to be descended of any type of nobility or royalty in order to have dignity and respect as a human being, especially when I come from a long line of human beings who deliver babies or hand out food. Those are actually useful skills. And I think Uh that we really need to encourage people instead of trying to find superficial attachments to these very Eurocentric goals to look at the way that our principles of honor and community well-being uphold us as individuals. Because I think that sometimes people hear ideologies like tribalism and collectivism and they assume that it leaves no room for you as an individual because we live in such a hyper and dangerously individualistic society but really it allows you to be more of yourself because you are never when you have a community to support you going to fail in the ways that someone who has no community to catch them can you know it's really hard to fall super far when you have a lot of relatives to pick you back up. And relatives don't necessarily need to be blood relatives. By building a strong community and an urban garden and farm like you are, you're probably connecting people and creating lasting lifelong friendships that are relations in this neighborhood that will possibly Mm -hmm. outlast the space you're working. And that is actual community building because you've provided the space to allow that to happen organically. And I think that where white saviorism and liberalism goes wrong is they try to force that rather than simply giving the people who need it the onus and independence to do it themselves. Right. Like we just, we really just need spaces to come together and especially now you know, that we can't gather in each other's homes or in these, uh, you know, spaces, you know, inside buildings quite as safely. You know, the farm has become, you know, one of the few spaces where we can gather outdoors, still be working towards a common goal, but also keeping a safe distance, wearing our mask, um, you know, sanitizing, doing the best we can to, to gather safely. Um, and, and you need more spaces like that. Yeah, I think that um, 
what's really nice about working outside is that in a time where we definitely need more things to keep our brains occupied because we're no longer allowed to have certain kinds of, dis of, of distractions, having a safe place to learn a new skill is also important. And I feel like it's nice that you're providing that without pressure to people and that it's completely voluntary and that nobody feels shamed or unwelcome if they don't decide to like contribute any physical labor. And uh, that's super, super nice because I feel like there's always a uh, service that is somehow like expected of people who are in desperate situations when sometimes mm -hmm. maybe you could just help people and shut up about it. Right. Yeah, it's like, yes, I need support, but in order to get the support, I then have to spend time on these classes and going through this curriculum and attending workshops. And, you know, it might all be well and good, but the reason I need support is because I don't have the time or money to be going grocery shopping and to be cooking for my family. So in order for me to qualify for these food programs, I then have to take more time away from my job and my family. So it's like I'm still in the same situation. <laughs> I still don't have time or money or transportation means like the same obstacles that were put in place that kept me from being able to feed myself or my family are the same obstacles that will make it more difficult and stressful for me to comply with these qualifications in order to be eligible for your food support services. And it's like, you know, it's like the whole, you know, oh, we got to drug test everyone who's receiving uh, welfare. And it's like, shit, does that, does that really matter? Like if someone can feed themselves or needs a little bit of support, you know, they're suddenly not worthy of being able to eat and provide for their family the basic essentials because maybe they smoke a little bit or maybe they have a drug problem. So they're going to starve to death because you're going to judge them of, of why they're using. And the that, thing, that makes it better. Well, also, desperation leads to chronic pain, leads to addiction and self-medication. Uh -huh. And so it's... People really want to blame poor folks for being in these positions when it's actually the poverty that creates these conditions anyways. And again, it's like trying to solve the solution for something. Well, we should be able to help these people, just not if they smoke any weed at all. Well, if they've been working since they were 14, they probably have some chronic pain because they have also been malnourished since they were 15. So now you're just blaming a, a person who has lived a perpetual cycle of need for mm -hmm. managing their need of pain without traditional routes because, you know, doctors are expensive, which they could afford if they hadn't been working their whole lives because they already started as poor people, you know. And yeah, or if they had health care through their employer, you know, maybe they could afford Yeah, it's it's a condition that we have called being assholes, and I'm not like a huge fan. And uh, I also just wonder, 
you know, it's hard sometimes for me to even see the perspective of the other side because obviously I'm an Afro-Indigenous woman, so I've always been on this side. But I cannot imagine a world where I would see hungry people and I would immediately be like, but do they deserve to not starve to death? I'd be like, maybe you should eat something first and then we can talk about the other things going on. You know, I'm just a reasonable person in that way. I think there are a lot of people who are unwilling to acknowledge all the circumstances of chance and birth and all the things that are completely outside of your control that allows you to live in comfort or to have access to certain opportunities and to acknowledge, like, yeah, you may be hardworking and all that, but you were set up pretty good in life, you know, and that doesn't make you any more deserving or any better of a person than someone who was dealt a rougher hand. You know, y'all are both human. Y'all both deserve access and, you know, ability to provide for your essential needs. You know, just because you have a degree and you don't or what have you doesn't mean that that person, uh, you know, isn't capable of achieving what you've achieved or uh, doesn't want to or, you know, doesn't deserve all the goodness and the comfort that you have in your life. Just, you know, this colonial system is designed against a lot of us. We're even if we do achieve a lot of the things of, you know, mediocre white success, it takes a toll on us to get here and to stay here, you know, without wanting to burn the world down or, uh, you know, internalizing a lot of the pain that we've had to swallow to endure what we've endured. Yeah, um, it's a constantly frustrating discussion because as soon as I stand up for myself at all, you've probably experienced this too, you're immediately called aggressive. So even where we're having like a regular discussion about how food is something everyone needs, somebody will eventually call me aggressive for saying something like, everybody deserves food and you shouldn't judge how people get food including by hunting or eating at a McDonald's because that's the only food accessible to them and there's no grocery stores. Uh, Because people oftentimes don't really realize how difficult food access is and how huge of an effect that has on someone's life. If you don't live anywhere where there's a grocery store within five square miles and it's super expensive and it's also in a white neighborhood which puts you in danger, nobody wants to get on a bus after working a nine-hour day or more, and then go to a grocery store where they can be racially targeted to buy food that's too expensive for them to take another long bus ride home. It's not a circumstance that people think about at all because everyone would be like, well, why don't you just get a car? Do you have any idea how expensive a car is for someone who already has no money? let alone maintenance. It's just we constantly perpetuate these ideologies that people simply are not picking themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, when right, or they're just not capable of understanding how the system works or, or navigating it, you know? Yeah. Like, as an, as an indigenous ecologist, a lot of times I'm put in this box, like, okay, Kellen, you're here to tell us that nature is all about balance and that we need to refer to certain things as sacred spaces and we want you to make our language look better so that when we come to communities that are threatened by 
land loss or climate change or food insecure, you know, they feel like we're better people because you've corrected our language a little bit um, and, you know, can lead us in prayer at the beginning or something. But yes, while those things are important, I'm also over here like, well, you know, if we really want to get down to it, you know, the the tribal leaders that y'all are conferencing with trying to explain how these programs are going to work, they're also telling you, like, you're on tribal sovereign land and you should be deferring to them instead of talking down to them. You should be asking for their permission to do these projects on their land. But they don't want to hear that side of it. They just want the nice, peaceful, rage-free Native girl to bless their projects. Yeah, it's it's definitely a tokenization that I face a lot, and it's a tokenization that um, particularly annoys me because I grew up in a black community and I am a reconnecting Native person, so that's not even necessarily my experience with the world, um, as it is not many Indigenous peoples' experience with the world because there are so many of us who are detached or urban and didn't necessarily grow up near our traditional lands or knowing our traditional ways. And yet we always get because we are are mixed or black native. Yeah, I wasn't even gonna get into the whole my whole family was forcibly disenrolled because my great grandfather didn't pass a paper bag test. Right, right. Mary, yeah. yeah. We'll have another conversation. Yeah. That's that's the thing for many of us is um yeah. A lot of us have been forced away from our people as a result of colonization. And that's something that Kima and I discussed when we were discussing her struggles with um, houselessness is how many people, especially Southeastern nations and New England nations, are disenfranchised because of how long we've been fighting colonialism and of how little knowledge there is about um the depth of our communities, because a lot of our communities are Creole or Maroon cultures, and people have a really big problem with Afro-Indigene. And I know that that's a little bit of your background too, but like, does that, is that part of what inspires you to pursue this type of work is that there are definitely needs that we have with the land, but coming from communities that maybe you're not as well known in Indian country. How do you think that affects your relationship with the land in a different way than perhaps somebody who is Lakota? You know, Lakota folks have three fairly large reservations and a lot of Southeastern nations don't have any land allotted to them. And that's a totally different situation for our communities. Not that anything is better or worse, but it is different. And folks, I don't think yeah. know enough about it. Yeah, well, we're, my family's from, you know, it was our matriarch, Mama Coin Coin, you know, she was a, a plissage or, you know, an enslaved woman who, you know, had a long-term um, concubinage almost with this white man. Um, and, you know, after years of being with him and burying his children, uh, you know, saving folks, white folks in the village with her, her knowledge of medicines and, and traditional healing, you know, when he was later in his life, he wanted to have legitimate heirs, you know, so he basically kicked Coin Coin out, but set her up with some land. 
in a forested area outside of the main colonial uh, fort of Natchitoches. And so with that land and, you know, with the money that she made starting to trap and plant and provide healing services to the community, she bought back a lot of her children. She bought back her kin. Um, you know, they worked the land alongside uh, folks that they had, you know, because sometimes in, the, in those times you might not be able to afford to completely manumit someone or free them, but you could buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, you know, a, a sticky history of black slave owners, but at that time, you know, still trying to survive as a, as a free black person in the deep south, you know, your daughter might technically economically be your slave, but that's because you don't have the money to completely manumit her at this point in time, but you know she's safe because she's with you. Um, and, and so people sometimes kind of miss miss that mark in history. It's, you know, under desperate circumstances, you do what you can to protect your family and protect your own and protect yourself. Um, but this land on the river that she was granted, it, it became this free community of color where people of, you know, mixed black and white heritage or black and native heritage or white native heritage or Chinese and black heritage, you know, all these different cultures, non-white folks who were in this colonial area or trying to escape the colonial area. Like this was the one space that they had in the region where they could be free of, um, you know, the French or the Spanish codes that were really strict about, um, you know, mixed race relations and families. Uh, you know, it was, you know, the church that we have on on the river is it, one of the oldest churches that was built by and for black people where, you know, the black folks weren't expected to sit up in the rafters or sit in the back of the church. We were at the front of the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if white folks came, it's like, I guess you can sit in the back or something. Um, but no one was turned away because of color or creed. Um, you know, during the Civil War, I think we had folks on, on both sides of the war. And again, it's, you know, strange times and people trying to survive in a system that's not built for them. Um, but I, I guess where that comes into today in my relationship with the land, I see how land changes things for generations, you know, just those 80 acres or something that Coin Coin was started off with, it created this really vibrant, deeply connected community of folks who can trace their ancestry back to, you know, a few families or, you know, to the native folks in the region who were there prior to colonization and who married into these families. And everyone comes back for holidays. Um, you know, that's that's our home. A lot of folks still live there, um, but land in the area is getting more and more expensive because it's, it's a beautiful place and people want vacation homes. Um, so, you know, you're seeing fewer and fewer folks of those original freedmen families um, who own land in the area, and there's not a lot of opportunity there either to allow people to stay there and provide for their families. So the folks um, who are able to live there 
and provide for themselves now are either, um, you know, wealthy and, you know, can have that as their second home, their summer home or what have you. They're retired. Um, they work in the paper mill or, uh, you know, in one of the failing schools that are constantly being shut down and closed because of lack of resources. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of opportunity there to, to really provide for yourself or your family. Or if there is, it's a struggle and it comes with a lot of baggage, you know, mm-hmm. the environmental effects of, of working on a paper mill. Um, yeah. Or what have you. Or they're involved in, in traditional environmental fields like, you know, farming or cattle ranching or horse breeding and horse training and stuff. Um, but it's not like you can live there and, and do have you know access to all these potential job opportunities like you would in a city. So you're asking, really asking people, you know, do you want to stay on your traditional homeland um, and and feel connected to this place and family traditions, or are you going to leave to try to be able to provide for yourself in a different way or provide for your family in a different way? Yeah. Um, and where the village is now, you know, there is a national park there. It's on the African American Heritage Trail. Um, so there's a whole national park in one of the traditional plantation homes of the white slave owner um, who granted Quen Quen her land after, um, you know, being with her for for years. Um, but you know, with when it comes about, you know, tribal enrollment and things like that, most everyone in our family can trace their lineage back to one of several tribes in the area, whether it be Choctaw, Appalachie, who migrated from Florida or, or Caddo. Um, but because of, you know, the whole conflict about freedmen being enrolled in in federal tribes and then the beast between federal and state tribes and, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, card-carrying Indians, quote, quote, um, not wanting to acknowledge folks with more mixed ancestry as indigenous, you know, we don't have any of the protections that, you know, other other tribes or other tribes of people might who are indigenous, um, but you know, our, our whole community is tied to that land. And and like I said, all of us have indigenous ancestry and, you know, we are displaced indigenous people of the Yahweh and Fran people of West Africa. And no one, you know, Coin Coin and her parents, they didn't ask to be shipped here. They're displaced indigenous people and we're their descendants. Yeah. So it all comes back to land. Like I said, how much land ownership can, it can provide for many generations and I just wonder you know if we were our ancestors were given their 40 acres and a mule as promised or if you know indigenous land grabs during manifest destiny weren't a thing we would be having very different conversations today absolutely especially when it comes to nations that have higher members of Afro-Indigenous people that has been used against us to disenfranchise us when it comes to land rights. And I'm a Cherokee freedman. I'm not registered, and I don't think I ever will be because I have beef with tribal governments. Um, But that's a whole nother story. I just don't feel like it is appropriate 
to um, leave all the other freedmen out in the cold when there are so many Cherokee freedmen who could say, hey, these people deserve their rights too. And uh, maybe some of us are not doing as good of a job as, at acknowledging that as we should be. But we also only just very recently, I, even in the early 2000s, just got rights for our tribe. And I don't know if anybody else knows this, but Seminole Freedom, the freedmen are basically counted under the three-fourths compromise, like the three-fifths compromise, which means they don't actually get to represent themselves at all, but their votes and their population get used to bring benefits to their tribal government, but anything to help them is oftentimes voted against by that same tribal government that gets to use them to make money. And I have a problem with that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I really appreciate you coming to talk with me about what you do. And um, what's going on in your community. Because one of the things I think is really important, and specifically on accident, it turns out. Uh, like, it became a specific thing, but on accident, is I've been interviewing a lot of people from the South and from Appalachia on purpose. Because I feel like these are regions with complicated land histories that are very much ignored because of classism. So, I'm glad that you came and talked to me about your family's personal history in the area because I just don't think that people realize the diversity of the history in the South and that they chop it up to being antebellum or after Jim Crow and during Jim Crow. And that is all they know of the history of the area. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more to it. Yeah. So I appreciate you coming to share that with me. Yeah, thanks for the invitation and for getting me talking and and for offering some new ideas. Yeah. Um, We've been on the phone for about an hour, so if you have something else that you need to go do, we can totally cut the call. But is there anything that you want to give a shout-out, any links to anything that you want to mention, any programs, books, anything, anybody you want to give a shout out that is important to your work that you want folks to know more about. I will include those in the show notes, of course, so that it's not just people trying to re-listen to you, but I think it's also important that you tell people what you're into, why, and uh, how to support you resource-wise. Um, I can definitely give you a list later. Okay. Um, I guess I'm just in a really rough place right now, and with, you know, the winter holidays, it's a really sensitive time for folks um, struggling with mental health. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, you know, check up on, on your people, um, support your national suicide hotline, um, you know, be a little kinder to one another, um, and, you know, support our missing and murdered indigenous women and all of our efforts related to protecting, you know, women of color from, from violence. Cause you said it before, you know, women of color were, were constantly 
pouring out from our cups to pour back into our community and supporting people in our family and beyond our family. Um, and we're always, you know, being the ones who are facing this violence and discrimination. Um, and we're just hurting collectively as a people. Yeah. Yeah. I super appreciate you coming in, and I'm going to cut off the recording now, so. I always end up.